Well, Happy New Year, everyone. It's only up from here. No, I'm just... Some of my friends in high school were really into autocross racing, which is uh, where you take small four-cylinder, six-cylinder cars, and you go race them around big parking lots, and you put out a bunch of cones. It's basically like uh, poor, man's, poor man's racing, because um, you don't have to have any special race cars or anything. And so uh, one of my friends uh, uh, got his parents' hand-me-down Mitsubishi Gallant VR4, which has uh, a turbocharged six-cylinder uh, V6, and it... Uh, he took off the 8 PSI turbo that came on it and put on an aftermarket 30 PSI turbo. Um, not, the car was not designed for that kind of power, but you know you don't think like that when you're in high school. Um, and so the, we used to, to kind of just test the performance of the car. We'd go out um, to uh, places where there are big kind of big stretches of road and we kind of set mark off a place where we'd race to. And uh, usually with uh, a lot of the muscle cars um, that some of my other friends had, you could get up close to 140 miles an hour before you reached these, uh, the place on these straight outs. And um, so we were, my friend was anxious to, to test how fast this, his car with the new turbo on it was. Um, and so we got out there and uh, we were, I think we were racing an early 90s Mustang. This was in the 90s. And uh, we take off and I mean, we had the guy pegged all the way up until 130 miles an hour. And then I'm looking over, the thing's pegged on 130. My friend's like, he's pushing his, you cannot put your foot any farther into the, into the, uh, uh, into the firewall of the, of the engine, and it's not going any faster. He looks at me, he's like, what's going on? What's going on? And then the 90s Mustang, and we lose. Oh, it's fine. I mean, this is, don't try this at home. I'm not, I'm not encouraging this. So, we, uh, we, we, um, we get back to the shop, and my friend is just like, what is going on? Does he, do any of you know what happened? Why we lost? Who said that? A governor. So the car had a governor. It was actually two resistors on the circuit board um, that prevent the electronic accelerator from continuing to put um, more fuel air mixture into the, into the engine that basically would not allow the car to go any faster than 130 miles an hour. And my friend was like, he was irate. Like, you know, he's throwing, like, I can't believe they did this to the car. Like, it makes it ruined. You know, I mean, really coming unglued. So he figured out how to take the resistors off, bypass them, and then he went out. I, luckily, I was not in the car at this point. He re-races the same person, blows by, and at around 140 miles an hour, he cracked the block of his engine. Um, and basically, everything came you know, unglued, and he ruined the car. I mean, he didn't crash the car. Um, but you know, there is, a, there is a reason why the company put a governor on the car, and it wasn't just so that my friend couldn't have fun. You are free to use the power and performance of your car within limits. Because the governor was there to keep him safe and the people around him safe. And so what I want to know, can you help me, Hannah, with the first slide here? 
That's a picture of the car or something very close to it. What I want to ask you today is what are the governors in your life? Hopefully, they're set below 130 miles an hour. But governors can be bad or good. Some bad ones, maybe. Do you have a governor? Is a governor in your life just getting caught? How about fear of criticism? How about blind authority? I don't go beyond that because I've never gone beyond that, and somebody told me it at some point that it wasn't good, and I've really lost the, the why behind whatever it is that I'm doing. And so that's a governor in my life. Or are you like my friend? Do you hate what keeps you safe and rebel against those you deem responsible for making the rules? Maybe you want to live in the illusion that your freedom has no limits. I want you to just look around the room here for a minute. You know, we really have very little in common in this room. We come from San Miguel, Creston, Paso Robles, Templeton, Atascadero, Santa Margarita, even somebody from Whitley Gardens, if you want to do some composting. I mean, garden farms, excuse me. They got, if you want to do some composting, San Luis Obispo, Edna, Avila Beach, Shell Beach, Pismo Beach, Arroyo Grande, Grover Beach, Nipomo, Santa Maria, even Orchid, Lompoc. We come from all over the county. There are in this room people that are millionaires and people that really probably run out of money by around the 20th of the month. There are people with probably PhDs and people that didn't graduate from high school. There are people that are addicted to work and probably work way more than they should and people who are not working enough. There are people that are Democrats. There are people that are Republicans. There are people that think more like somebody um, that have, you know, there's endless variety in this room. But what binds us together is the love of Jesus. And the love of Jesus is not a thin thread that binds us together. The love of Jesus is the most resilient and powerful binding agent in the universe. And I want you to recognize that what's in here, who we are, is precious. It's precious to God. And in the ways that society today we are sorting ourselves into ever more uniform echo chambers and enclaves of thought where we really only fellowship with people who already agree with us. This is precious. It's precious to God. And it should be precious to us. It's where we are encouraged. It's where we're challenged. It's where we are put in a place to struggle with the Holy Spirit to see what's really important. And as we enter into this season of unity for 2018, I really believe that we will see a move of God. 
I believe he wants to truly knit our hearts together in a new way. And I want to cooperate with him. I want to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. So the title of this message is simply Governed by Love. Love can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. And a lot of words have been co-opted by the society of the day and meanings have changed and things. And I want to talk about an aspect of being governed by love. And it's the balance of liberty and boundaries. And so I'm going to read Romans chapter 14 just so that you can get a context of the way the Apostle Paul was wrestling with the church at Rome, and he also wrestled with the church in Corinth about many of the same things, but he spent a good deal of effort trying to make clear a a few certain points with the people in the church there, and I think that it is very relevant for us today. So Romans chapter 14, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one, this is not an endorsement of vegetarianism, by the way, I'm, or, or against it. The one who, I'll get to that in a minute. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore take, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. 
Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned. If they eat because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. There are instructions for the believer, and I just want to highlight four verses out of that chapter, but I wanted you to hear the chapter in context because it was clear Paul was really trying to drive home a few points and that he recognized the people who were going to be reading or listening to the letter being read were going to immediately glom onto one passage and go off on an extreme or glom onto another passage and go off onto another extreme. And he had to really wrestle with the points. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean this. Stay the course of love. Make every effort. And he had to, I mean, he wrestled for a whole chapter. I mean, I got hoarse just reading that. Can you throw? Give me a fresh water. Here we go. Uh-oh. All right. I'm pushing too many buttons. I think that's my calling. I'm a button pusher. Okay. So the first verse I want to look at is verse 1. Stop quarreling over disputable matters. It's the verse 1. And it really says that verse 1 is, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. What we see, the word accept there is not the word like, well, I'll just have to accept this. It's not akin to just tolerating or coexisting with somebody that doesn't agree with you. That's that's not what he's saying. Accept is the same word that Paul used to say that Christ accepted you. It means to receive somebody into deep friendship or into deep fellowship, to have koinonia, to have real kindredness or camaraderie with somebody. Weak faith is not just the fact that somebody might be a newer believer than you. Because in this day in the early church, there weren't any 20-year Christians in this church. These were primarily people that were Roman pagan worshipers or nothing at all. And their first taste had come through the preaching of the gospel through Paul. And they had just, I mean, we're talking, this was a whole church filled with new believers. What, what he meant was when he said white faith is that the faith is underdeveloped in an area. And we all have those areas. And disputable matters, just the fact that he says there are disputable matters, for many of us, every revelation that we get, we want to turn into an essential doctrine. That everything that God shows us must be uniformly for everyone and anyone who doesn't already agree or see it, therefore doesn't have a full measure of the truth that we have. 
Peter Meyerlin, a Lutheran theologian, said in 1626, towards the end of the Protestant Reformation period, which was a time of great struggle in the church worldwide, he said, if we might keep in essential matters unity, in disputable matters freedom, and in both charity, our fellowship would certainly be in the best condition. There are and still are innumerable areas about which to form opinions and convictions, and we should search out and learn all we can. And in all the wisdom we gain, like the writer of Proverbs said, even if it costs you everything, get understanding. Understanding is like the word to polish, to make smooth, to make accessible to somebody else. It's in context. It's maturity. It's not just sharp. Wisdom with understanding, even if it costs you everything, is wisdom that is palatable to those who live around you. In the passages, we should be, yeah, in the passages in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, he was talking about should believers get meat sold in the market um, or just vegetables or whether they were worshiping on a specific day or not. And really, it's a, a relatively easy concept. Um, there, were, uh, there was a meat offered regularly in temples to various Roman gods and goddesses, and that meat, after it was used in the ceremonies, was resold by people in the market. Um, and that meat was a lot cheaper than the meat that was you might get that was not used for those ceremonies and might have been fresh or you know prepared for another purpose. And so um, you know there was a, you're seeing that all these people coming out of this idol worship, out of this pagan worship, and many of them are like we're not touching anything that was used in that former life. And Paul is saying, hey, look, there's the idols are nothing. They mean nothing in truth. Before God, these idols, they don't exist. And so nothing, this meat, whether it was used for that or not, is irrelevant. That meat, to you, is fine. You can eat it. That's, I mean, that's what he says in Scripture. But he also says, hey, if that's, if that's a problem for you, if you want to separate yourself from your old life, then please, by every means, in faith, do it. And God will receive your abstention or your sacrifice or your, because of what you're doing in faith, he will receive that as worship to him. And if you say, you know what, idols, I've come to my, to realization that idols mean nothing. And, you know, there was an economic reality that says, hey, if I don't buy meat that's been used in these ceremonies, the only thing I'm going to be eating is vegetables. And my faith says that, okay, I can do that. This is not an essential doctrine. This is a matter of faith in relationship with the one who made you. And we could do either in faith. These are the examples Paul was dealing with. The other one is that, okay, so um, the, it wasn't like uh, the, this, there were different days that were set aside for different things on the Roman calendar than maybe what we were used to. And so there were also um, probably, there were Hebrews that worshiped on Saturday um, and that were in a mix of these different churches. And he's basically saying, whether you worship on Saturday or you go to church on Saturday or Sunday or any other day or you claim or you, whatever it is, that, that's not the point. You can do whatever you're doing, do it for the Lord. Whatever you do, let it be from a place of humility and surrender to the Lord. 
So the next one is verse 8. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. That's my little summary. Verse 8, it says, if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? So live or die. Is he talking about people who are walking around versus dead in the grave? I mean, because that verse is oftentimes pulled out to kind of mean that. But in context with this chapter, that's not what he's talking about at all. He's saying that he's referring to those who express their freedom, the liberty that they've been given in Christ, that they are living. And if you die to yourself, remember, there, there's oftentimes when you die to yourself, you are... Uh, um, there's many, many passages that describe the act of sacrificing or abstaining or fasting from something as you are dying to yourself, dying to your flesh. And both of those, he's saying, are acceptable acts of worship before the Lord. It is not our responsibility to play the Holy Spirit for someone else. It is our responsibility not to treat others with contempt or to think judgmental thoughts. It's not just about what you do, it's about what you think. He's saying it is not right for you to have contemptible thoughts about the one who does or the one who abstains. And yes, we see a picture of a Savior that is highly relational, highly personal, highly individualized for you and for me. And this is, not, this is not dealing with essential doctrines. This is disputable matters. And I know there's probably a lot of, of effort that we could expend picking which are essential doctrines and which are disputable matters. There's been creeds written in church history from the beginning of time all the way today that represent a lot of what we might consider to be essential doctrines. But what I want you to get today is that there are doctrines that are essential and there are ones that are disputable or they're up to you in your relationship with God. This argument is not one-sided. I, I do have, and, I, and I'm not trying to say, I'm not preaching an anything-goes gospel. I'm not, that's not the point here. I do have a growing concern, and it's shared by a number of contemporary authors that allowing for each other's ex ever-expanding liberties in the name of love and tolerance must be balanced with a love for the boundaries and the commandments God has established. When I think about my friend who wanted to take the governors off of his car or off of his life, I also think of the idea that many Christians don't want any governors. They want so-called freedom. And when freedom is not defined by the Holy Spirit in us, it really can blow up or self-destruct our lives. The value that the Holy Spirit plays as a governor in your life is precious. And it works both to protect you and also to liberate you. Verse 15, do not by your eating destroy someone. Verse 15, it says, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. What he's saying is, is that other people matter a lot. It's not that you have to be addicted or responsible for everyone else's reactions 
or that you're responsible for how other people feel about it. But you do have a responsibility to walk in love. You have a responsibility to be sensitive to the people around you. You have a responsibility to know the people around you. You have a responsibility and a duty to the people around you not to put up stumbling blocks, not to lay obstacles, not to say or do things that would literally destroy or cause offense and cause disruption in their relationship with Christ. We have to be open and sensitive and malleable to the leading of the Holy Spirit regarding what we say and do. We have to be willing to forego or abstain whatever it is that might offend. Our liberty really is for the good of others. Our liberty is for the growth of the gospel. Our liberty is for the glory of God. And that last little point, it says, don't let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that you need to go out and defend everything that you think is good to everyone who's trying to tear it down. That's, it's actually the opposite of that. What he's saying is, is if you, know what you're, if, if you know that you're going into, you're going to visit some family members um, that uh, have a bunch of Santas up at Christmas, and you and your family don't believe or recognize or have an issue with Santa corrupting the holiday of Christmas, it is not a good idea to go in without preparing your children not to declare war on the people that you're going to visit because it doesn't build up or give you any opportunity to share the love of Christ with them. It's saying, he's saying, Paul is saying it is okay to be silent. It is okay to not state your opinion everywhere you go. Not everything has to be defended. You can have convictions and leadings that only exist in your own relationship with God. If you know that you are in the company of others that don't believe the same, it is okay to not bring it up and still have deep friendship with them. And verse 19. Make every effort to do what leads to peace. Verse 19 says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. That means, literally, in the Greek, to make every effort. That means it's going to require effort. He wouldn't say make every effort if it was going to be easy for some and not for others. It will be hard and challenging for all of us in this room to make every effort. We should be asking ourselves, what leads to peace around here? What leads to mutual edification? There are clearly subjects that divide us along any number of lines. So where do we focus our energy? Where do we highlight our attention? If Jesus walked among us this morning, and he is walking among us this morning, what does he notice about us? Maybe we should set our eyes on the same things. You know, in the talking about liberty and boundaries, there are also some implications for the church, for us as a collective, as a body, as a family. Because unfortunately, there is a well-worn pathway in the church where 
these holy attitudes of deference for the individual can mutate into church rules of legalism. The appeal from Paul to keep soft edges with one another is turned into firm doctrine about one side of an issue or another. And in doing this, we have missed the mark. Paul was stating the non-negotiable Christ-like attitude was, in fact, unity, accepting one another despite our differences in disputable matters. It was never about endorsing or taking sides in these things. Let's look at a recent example something that probably we don't struggle with as much here, but I want to highlight it so that we can develop a shared understanding of what I'm talking about. Anyone know what that is? Oh, there's one. Here are some things that renowned church leaders across many denominations have said between 1850 and the present day, 2017, about drums in church. A constant drumming tends to turn a spiritual ministry into a more sensual experience. A different one said, are we losing a sense of the distinction between fleshy excitement and spiritual joy? Let the exhilaration of our congregational singing arise primarily from an appreciation of the truth and of God himself and not simply a physiological and psychological response to a beat. The latter may, in fact, distract worshipers from a true worship. Somebody else said, is it not a sin to be tickling men's ears with sounds when we profess to be adoring the Lord? Do not men mistake physical effects for spiritual impulses? Do they not often offer to God strains more calculated for human amusement than for divine acceptance? Another church leader said, due to their intrusiveness and tendency to dominate, drum sets tend to draw attention to the individual. In the services of the church and in congregational singing, this is surely contrary to our purpose where, quote, he must increase, but I must decrease. Another church leader said, because of the strong association in the minds of some with worldly music and worldly pleasures, the inclusion of drums in worship is a step backward. We should not be trying to see how much like the world we can be. We should be demonstrating as clear a distinction from it as possible. For certain individuals, these rhythmic instruments may even recall their past experiences in the world, a life they are trying to leave behind. And again, at times, the debate over drums in church divides along generational lines. Some congregations are prepared to, quote, endure the drums as a kind of compromise in hopes of keeping the younger generation in the church. But at what cost? It is demonstrable that for at least some young people, music with a dominating rhythm is a passion, and I would say almost an addiction that has robbed them of the contemplative spirituality and a fuller appreciation of other kinds of music. Some young people do get addicted to driving rhythms and music. I remember I had to throw out when I first really surrendered my life to Christ it wasn't because of any church law, but it became evident that a lot of music, there were two kinds of music that I had to get rid of. One was angry music, and one was lustful music. It wasn't so much whether it was, quote, secular or Christian. But I didn't need things to help me feel angry anymore. That was not an emotion I was trying to incubate and neither was lust. And those, those emotions had hooks in me. And so I had to abstain from them. I didn't need 
the church I was going to to tell me, you are in sin if you listen to fill in the blank. I was led myself, and I knew it, and I had to. Now, when that stuff comes on now, it has no power over me, no hook at all. I don't put it on my playlist, but when I hear it, it has no effect. But for some, some young people, it does give rise to sensuality. It prevents growth in contemplative spirituality. There are truths all throughout what those church leaders were saying for the last 150 years. I love old hymns. I love them. And I encourage their inclusion in worship. They are instructive theologically, and they give us a rich dialogue in worship. And it is true that drums or no drums have split churches generationally in many ways. They've been causes of offenses and rows and bitter, bitter arguments. It is legalistic, however, to forbid drums in church. There are elements of praise and freedom in the Spirit that are ushered in by the praise of driving rhythms. Are we to say that Noah Benda, his gift to play drums is not suitable for church when God clearly gave it to him? It is equally legalistic to exclude all hymns because they are old or don't match our formulaic style of the times. Are we to say that hymns inspired by the very people who were martyred as church mothers and fathers of our movement are no longer relevant? The point is not to endorse or criticize drums or hymns, but to encourage people not to turn their insights into extreme mandates applicable uniformly to everyone. Insights are not meant to become law. Here's a quote from Law and Liberty by John MacArthur and Phil Johnson. He said, I once had a protracted discussion with a pastor who insisted that it is a sin to listen to contemporary music because so much of it is loud and rhythmic. Loud volume and a strong beat are the two elements of today's music that appeal most to the flesh, he said. He insisted it is perfectly evident to any truly spiritual person that noisy music and syncopated rhythms are inherently sinful. He dismissed the percussion instruments named in Psalm 150, especially the loud clashing cymbals, as relics of old covenant worship. When I suggested that the psalm nevertheless challenges his axiom or his law that rhythm per se is self-evidently sinful, he angrily ended the conversation. Whatever one's tastes in music styles, Scripture clearly teaches that it is a very serious sin to impose on others any spiritual standard that has no biblical basis. When God gave the law to Israel, he told them, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Everything that I command you shall you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. The same principle is repeated in the New Testament. We find in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul rebuking the Corinthians for their sectarianism, saying, I'm of Paul, or I am of Apollos, and so on. His rebuke to them includes these words in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, quote, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That is a good guideline for how we should exercise our Christian liberty. Don't go beyond what is written in Scripture. Don't make rules to impose on others. Don't devise rituals and forms of worship that are not authorized. And don't speak on such matters where God has been silent. 
That's how the principle of sola scriptura or primera scriptura, which is God's word is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice, applies to Christian living. If we really believe scripture is a sufficient rule for sanctification, then we don't have to add anything to it. Nor is there virtue in applying every principle of scripture in the strictest possible way. Quote, keeping oneself unstained from the world doesn't mean you have to avoid contact with the world or retreat to a nunnery. If we add rules that scripture doesn't make, especially if we try to impose our man-made rules on other people's consciences as a standard of spirituality, we are guilty of the same sin as the Pharisees and worthy of the same harsh rebukes Christ leveled at them. You know, we don't really struggle with that area of legalism. But there are probably other areas that lurk. And I use this example because we can find common ground and shared understanding about that there are truths and things to be celebrated about hymns, and there are truths and things to be celebrated about contemporary music. There are pitfalls and things that are more like the world in one way about contemporary music. And if we only sang hymns and lost the why behind the what and we did it because it was just tradition, there's also pitfalls to becoming so formulaic about one or the other. And that's not what Christ modeled for us. He had the ultimate liberty and he laid it down. You know, the move of God will not arise because we have rid the church of democratic or Republican thinking, people who choose not to vaccinate their kids or those who take every needle poke offered by their doctors, people who follow a certain diet or don't follow any diet at all, people that won't buy any food made with Monsanto grain or people who don't know what Monsanto is, people who celebrate Christmas with Santa and Elf on the Shelf or only manger characters. People who take their kids trick-or-treating or avoid Halloween entirely. People who believe in homeschooling, private schooling, or public schooling and have strong convictions about what it means for their family. People who wear only suits to church or people who put on whatever jeans happen to be clean. People who worship to rap, rock, reggae, country, or only classical hymns, and the list goes on. Our job is not to rid the church of these things, because in doing so, we rid the church of people that belong to Jesus. Our job is to make allowances for others, to be soft with others. Our job is to hold aspects of our freedom with open hands to the Lord for the sake of others, not giving in to the pride of rebellion, saying, nobody is going to tell me what to do. The move of God will come when we lay down our arguments over disputable matters and join hands with sincerity, because it truly is one of the most mysterious and divine paradoxes. We've been given liberty to become a servant. That is the model Jesus gave. He laid down the ultimate liberty, the ultimate righteousness, the ultimate power, the ultimate worthiness for us. What does Jesus have in common with us? What did he have in common with us? Did he think like us? Did he go to the same tennis club as we did? Did he, was he angry the way we were? 
Was he rebellious the way we were? Did he have anything in common with us? No. We have been given great liberty to become a servant in the way Jesus became a servant to us.